InfoTrack continues. The issue of concussions in professional football has gotten a lot of media attention of late, but what about college and high school players? Well, a recent study at Purdue University uncovered stunning results that every player and their parent should know about. We're joined by Thomas Tolavage, an associate professor at the Weldon School of Biomedical Engineering and School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Purdue and lead researcher of the study. Dr. Tolavage, welcome to InfoTrack. Thank you very much. So tell us what exactly you studied. What we studied was a series of high school football players from one team. We observed them over the course of the season, both before season, during the season, and then after the season. We evaluated them using some basically computer-based testing. We also did some neuroimaging on them using functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a technique that allows us to observe the physiology of the operation of the brain. And we also then during the season monitored them for collision events to the head. So every time that they took took a blow to the head exceeding 14.4 times the force of gravity, then we actually were able to count that and identify where on the head that blow took and how large that blow was. And tell us, this is a stunning number, how many blows to the head did the average player get in a single season? The average player was probably around 600 for the players who were on the varsity team and actually seeing the field, whereas our top players exceeded 1,800 blows to the head over the course of the season. Wow. And that's the ones that exceeded 14.4 Gs, and that's roughly comparable in G-force to the force you experience, say, in a light whiplash. But the most important conclusion from your study we have yet to get to, and that is the effect of that number of blows to the head without being diagnosed with a concussion. Correct. When we brought in 11 of these players over the course of the season for follow-up exams, what we actually were originally doing was we wanted to study players who received concussions to understand how their brain activity and their cognitive function changed as a function of time. But we also decided we should bring in some of the other players as controls just so we could document how our tests would vary as a function of time. What we uh, unintentionally found was that half of the players we brought in as controls actually were showing greater cognitive and neurophysiologic or functional impairment than were our concussed players. And how many players over the course of a season were diagnosed with concussions? Within our study, four of our players were diagnosed with concussions and the team experienced at least six. And then we brought in eight control players and four of them exhibited greater impairment both on the testing and in the functional MRI than did our players who were actually diagnosed with a concussion. Four to six high school football players out of 21 being diagnosed with outright concussions in a single season, not even counting the hidden injuries you have uncovered, that's a stunning number. It's apparently not atypical. When we speak with local high schools, they typically report an average of about five to six concussions per year per team. Now, we were, of course, focusing on mostly starting players in our study, so these were clearly the players who would have the greatest opportunity to get concussed. But that is actually a fairly normal number, it appears. What were you expecting in this study as far as the results for the non-concussed players? Were you shocked by what you found? Yes, we were quite surprised. In fact, to be honest, our initial assumption was that when we were getting the neurocognitive tests back showing these players were notably impaired, particularly in their visual working memory, we initially thought we'd done something wrong with our testing. But when we then looked at our functional neuroimaging data, we found that these players were exhibiting appreciably altered activation patterns in response to a relatively simple working memory task, which suggested that, yes, these players were actually suffering from a reduced ability to perform tasks involving a relatively modest neurocognitive load in terms of amount of information coming in that they needed to process in order to get to 
the key feature or the key element uh, of what's coming into them, kind of like a, in a cocktail party effect. When you're sitting there and there are a number of voices around you and you're picking out a single voice, that loading was now very difficult for these players to actually perform. Our guest on InfoTrack is Dr. Thomas Talavage, an associate professor at the Weldon School of Biomedical Engineering and the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Purdue University. And he's the lead researcher in a study that looked at high school football players and their chances at brain damage, even if they're never diagnosed with a concussion. Dr. Talavich, what do we know about the long-term impact of these collisions? Are these the sorts of things that maybe their brain function will improve over time, or are these sorts of things more permanent? That's a good question. What we know thus far is for the players who evidenced this impairment during the course of the season, when we brought them back a couple months after the season, they were starting to recover. They were exhibiting both neurocognitive testing and neuroimaging results that were getting closer to their preseason performance within each player. When we brought several of those players back here, we're now almost near the end of our second year of our study, and 16 of the players who participated last year returned to the study this year. Those players who showed dysfunctional impairment during last season were very close to, if not at, their same preseason performance during this year's preseason scanning and this year's preseason testing. So what this suggests is that at least in the short term, these impairments can be recovered to a reasonable degree. We don't yet know, however, if that recovery is 95%, 98%, or 100%. And so what our concern is, is that given the documentation of ex-NFL players who have exhibited appreciable damage to their brains without a corresponding history of concussions, is this maybe a mechanism where these players are getting 98% recovered, but then the next year it's 98%, the next year it's only 98%, and gradually if they continue to play for 15, 20 years, do we suddenly find that they are significantly impaired? We don't know that that's the case, but that's what we're continuing now to study in this longitudinal study where we're evaluating these players year after year is the plan, and then we hope to have an answer to that question. Did you find there was a particular player position in the game that seems to be more at risk than others for these non-concussion brain injuries? The majority of the players who were impaired, they had a significantly higher number of blows to the top front of their helmet. So that's a little bit above the face mask, basically just above the forehead. And, of course, they also had a very large number of blows to the head. And both of these tended to be features of linemen in our study. So of the players who were exhibiting dysfunctional impairment, three of the four were linemen, two offensive linemen, one defensive linemen. And that is, I think, not unexpected, again, given the location of the blow on the helmet and the sheer number of blows, because, of course, linemen are going to hit somebody on every single play. Is there anything that coaches or schools can do at this point to try to minimize this problem? One of the thoughts we've had is that potentially just reducing the amount of contact, so two-thirds at least of the blows to the head that these players experienced were during practices as opposed to games. And if you really think about it, players today are really big, really strong. You compare some of these high school players, and they're bigger than, let's say, some of the linebackers for the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 70s. So in the NFL, players do not have contact in every single drill or in every single practice, whereas for a lot of high schools, particularly in our high school case, these players are practicing at full contact twice a week prior to their games. There are three significant contact activities every single week. Simply reducing some of that practice contact is very likely to have a significant effect on the total number of blows the players take and very possibly could reduce this type of impairment. And finally, if you were giving some advice to a parent whose son is planning to go out for football or is already playing, what would you tell them? Given that these players are not exhibiting 
obvious symptoms. When you talk to them, there's no clear impairment. They aren't stumbling over words because we're not affecting any of their language systems, apparently. The main thing would be maybe just keep track of, is my child behaving quite right? Is he having problems in school, particularly in tasks related to, say, visual spatial reasoning? Because those are where the primary impairments we observed in these players were located in visual attention, visual processing. So tasks involving spatial reasoning might be a place where you could observe a change in a student's behavior or student's performance. Of course, these are, by and large, in high school teenagers, so uh, asking someone to look for emotional changes is kind of pointless. They're going to be there all the time. But at the same time, I think some of these other issues, as we go further in this study and we start to understand which elements of the system are impaired, I hope we are able to come back with a more meaningful recommendation on that. But at this point, that's our general feeling. This has been fascinating information. Professor Thomas Talavage from Purdue University, thank you very much for joining us on InfoTrack. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. A production of Syndication Networks.